Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church today. My name is Otto Ramos. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my great privilege to welcome you uh, this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us online. If this is one of your first times joining us, might we encourage you to let us know that you're here. And one of the ways that you can do that here in person is by taking one of those communication cards that can be found on the seat back in front of you. You could just fill that out. And if you have some free time afterwards, please stop by our Welcome Center. We have a free gift just for visiting with us this morning. But indeed, thank you for worshiping with us today. For those of you joining us online, all you have to do is go to our website at vlchurch.com to let us know that you're here. That'll come straight to me, and I will connect with you sometime this week. But indeed, thank you again for worshiping with us this morning. I have a few announcements for you today. Every year, as you, as you might recall, if you've been hanging out with us for a couple of years we celebrate uh, the graduates among us. And so we have a graduation Sunday, and that's going to happen in a couple of weeks on Sunday, June 25th. And so if you are someone or perhaps have a child that is graduating from high school, college, graduate school, or professional school, let us know. Call the church office or fill out one of those communication cards because we want to celebrate this important milestone in your life. And I know that there are some within our congregation uh, this morning who have actually graduated from graduate school. I'm not going to embarrass you, but we'd like to celebrate you. So let us know that you have graduated, and we're going to honor you and pray for you on Sunday, June 25th. The other announcement that I have this morning is um, that we're going to be starting up our Bible and barbecue Groups. We've been doing these for the last couple of years. They happen once a month. They gather together to study God's Word and to have some good food with one another. And uh, we have three of them at present. Tom and Joan Corey are hosting one. Uh, Will Hodge and his family are hosting another one. And then Tom Hall has a group just for men. And so you can find out about these Bible and barbecue groups by going to our website, vlchurch.com. And click on the banner that you see on the screen there that says Bible and Barbecue, and you'll learn more about when those events happen and also where. I have one last detail this morning that comes from Pastor Peter's office for the parents of our Victory Life Church youth. Uh, He says, if you have a teenager who participates in our Victory Life Church youth group, please stop by the table in the north lobby after service today. He has some waivers for you to sign. Um, he's just thinking about safety details. Um, you know, you never, you never know uh, what might happen when you start bouncing around in those knocker balls out back. I bounced around in those last year and had to visit the chiropractor afterwards. But uh, So anyways, if you are a parent of a VLC youth, stop by and see him. He has candy that he's going to give you just for signing that waiver. And we just uh, do everything that we can to keep our youth safe here at Victory Life Church. Well, that's all I have this morning in the way of announcements. But if you have come to worship the Lord Jesus with your tithes and offerings, you likely know what to do and how to do it. You can actually give online at vlchurch.com backslash give. You can text to give or you can give as you exit the sanctuary this morning. But indeed, thank you for worshiping the Lord Jesus with your tithes and offerings today. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning, and as you do so, let's bow for a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, thank you for being here with us today. The Bible tells us that you inhabit the praises of your people. 
which ultimately means you live where your people lift up your name. We pray that you would come and live in this place today, but more specifically, may you come to live within our hearts as we sing to you and say to you, hallowed be your name, Lord, for your kingdom come, may your will be done here in our hearts as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things, and all of God's people said, amen. All we need, 
up a heart of praise Singing now with voices raised to Jesus Sing to the Shouting your name I know I am loved 
by the King, and it makes my heart. I am loved by the King, and it makes my heart. Yes, I am loved by the King, and it makes my heart wanna sing. just bow your heads with us this morning as we continue. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for how amazing that you are. Lord, we can sing in every instance of life because of what Jesus did. Lord, we are never without hope. And Lord, you have ministered to us through seasons of praise through seasons of worship, through seasons of times, Lord, where all we can do is praise. God, and you show up and you meet us. So, Lord, we just thank you that we always have a reason to praise you, to worship you. We praise the Father. We praise the Son. We praise the Spirit, three in one. We thank you for all that you are. And Lord, we continue to worship and to praise you this morning. Lord, be in our midst. In your name. In the darkness, we will
Till that stone was moved for good For the land that conquered death And the dead rose from their tombs And the angels stood in awe For the souls of all who come To the Father are restored And the church of Christ was born Then the Spirit lit the flame Now this gospel truth of all Shall not kneel, shall not fade By His blood and in His name In His freedom I am free For the love of Jesus Christ Who has Heavenly Father, we thank you for your perfect plan. One that is so powerful and so beautifully laid out through the Holy Scriptures. One where if we have eyes to see, we shall see. And one if we have ears to hear, we shall hear. And one if we have mouths to tell, we shall tell. For just as nothing that you've done in history has been an accident, nothing that you've done in our life's history has been an accident. For that same gospel, that same story that is meant for the redemption of the nations is also the same gospel and the same story that has redeemed us. You are real and you are personal and you are worthy of all of our praise and all of our adoration today. For just as your perfect plan was laid out in the gospel story, your perfect plan is unfolding in each one of our lives. Oh Lord, I pray today we would place ourselves even more securely in your hand and even more ready to hear your voice. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated.
All right, at this time, young disciples, you may be dismissed to go down the hall, many of whom are getting ready for vacation Bible school this week. I don't know that I am ready for vacation Bible school this week. Emotionally, we'll see what happens. But it's going to be loud and it's going to be wonderful. So hope if you have an elementary age child down to pre-K that they're planning to come. For those of you who remain with us this morning, we are going to start our summer series. Woohoo! Yeah! Thank you all. That's the loudest first service has been since the Reagan administration. We're happy that, uh, that you're invested. We're going to be studying the book of Romans uh, this summer. That's going to lend us continuity June, July, and August. There is going to be some guests here, uh, both from our own pastoral staff and some really neat folks from the community that are going to be in the pulpit a little bit this summer, and so we're excited for that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans. And for some of you, this is going to be like showing up for a Christmas Day feast, but there's so much on the table that you know that you can't eat it all. You know, that's what I discovered when I married my wife's family into the Elio family, the Mercurios. We'd, 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 we'd have this Christmas buffet, and there was no chance that you could sample everything without dying. And, and, and that's kind of how Romans is, even though the words of the gospel bring life, there's so much here that what I'm going to encourage you to do this summer is to sample what God places in your mind and your heart. Don't, don't try to get it all. If you try to get it all, you're, you're going you're gonna to be going for too much. There's, there's so much here, but I think you're going to love this series because, boy, Romans is the granddaddy of them all. And we're going to have some great fun together. But we got to place it in context. So let's do that this morning. In the winter of 57 AD, now you can do the math how many years ago that was, but 57 AD, the Apostle Paul had great big plans. I mean, the Apostle Paul had done some amazing things up to 57 AD, but he had some great big plans in the winter of 57 He had had three what we call missionary journeys to this point. If you turn in the back of your Bible, if you've got a study Bible, you have a map that sort of shows you the different missionary or evangelistic journeys of Paul. He was near the end of his third missionary journey. He had founded churches. He had strengthened churches. He had grown churches all over the Mediterranean world. But now he was going to take a great big offering from the Gentile churches, the non-Jewish churches, back to Jerusalem, And he was going to interact with the church in Jerusalem that had started it all because they had been in famine and in in need. He was going to take a big offering to show the the Jewish churches, hey, the Gentile churches love you and they want to take care of you. But then from there, he was going to head to Rome. He was going to go to the seat of the Roman Empire, that huge, massive city where the gospel had already been preached, but he was going to strengthen the churches. And, And the plan gets even bigger. His hope was after going to the crossroads of the ancient world, Jerusalem, now to the great city of the empire, Rome, if the Roman church likes him enough, they'll send him on to Spain. And he'll get to the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Those are big plans, aren't they? That's quite the plan. He wants to go from one end of the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the other end, into Jerusalem, then to Rome, and then to Spain. And that's his plan for his fourth missionary journey. We don't know how that worked out, because... Acts chapter 28 ends, and we're not sure what happens in the life of Paul next, but that was the plan. Here's the problem. Paul was going to need to explain, to define and defend the gospel that he's been preaching. 
You see, when he went to Jerusalem, he was going to need to explain what he'd been doing because he had been founding churches under the premise that in Jesus Christ, you can be saved and you do not have to follow the Old Testament law. You don't need to follow the purity laws of the Old Testament. You don't need to be invested in looking Jewish because the Gentiles were not Jewish. And therefore, he knew any time that he went to Jerusalem, he was going to face tough questions about the gospel that he had been preaching. But that's not the only problem that Paul had. He was also going to go to Rome. And those were churches that he had never met, with people that he had never met, with dynamics that he maybe didn't understand fully. And so in the winter of 57, he spends some time defining, explaining, perhaps even defending the gospel that he'd been preaching to these churches. And he sends a letter ahead of him to Rome by way of introduction to say, this is what I've been preaching, this is what the other Gentile churches of the Mediterranean world have been hearing, and I want to introduce myself to you so that you know that we are in one accord, that, that I belong to you and you belong to me in Christ. And what comes to us today from that letter is what we call the book of Romans. It's a letter, in essence, to that Roman church to introduce himself and define and explain his gospel. But what we end up with is the granddaddy of all epistles, Because he explains the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus did in so much depth and so much sophistication as to almost knock you over with a feather. It's a powerful book. Now, why would we want to study Romans? Why would we spend the summer doing this? Well, it's simple. For centuries, people have been reading this book and becoming aware more fully with the great salvation with which they've been saved. In essence, they fall in love with what Jesus has done even more, and then they move. Then they're spurred into action because they understand just who Jesus was and just what he's done for them even more deeply, and therefore they move into new action. We could say this of St. Augustine. We could say this of Martin Luther. We could say this of John Wesley. We could say this of some of the great theologians of the 21st century that all of your pastor friends had to read in seminary. Because God uses the gospel to inspire his people to go share the gospel. How about you? You got big plans for God? Those of you hosting neighborhood VBSs this summer, those of you inviting your friends and your neighbors to church, those of you who in your workplace have started those Bible studies or maybe in your neighborhood have started a Bible study. You got big plans for God? You want to see more and more people come to faith in Christ Jesus? Well, in Romans, you will see yourself. You'll see all that you have received and all that you want others to receive. That's why this book is so powerful. You'll see all that God has done for you, and then you'll be able to convey what God has done for you. And that's ultimately what we're going to do each and every week in the book of Romans. Not just study the theology. That's fun. That's fun for me. I don't know if it would be fun for you. It's fun for me to study the theology. Ultimately, we want to be able to define and explain what Jesus has done for us. So each and every week as we study here, we're going to hope to put it in vernacular, put it in a language that each one of us can speak. That when the opportunity arises to tell people what Christ has done for us, we'll be ready. 
will be ready. So the first lesson today in Romans is simple. The gospel is to be believed, and the gospel is to bring belonging. And that's what Paul wants to convey to the Romans by way of introduction. If you're not in Romans already, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We start our letters, dear so-and-so. He starts his letters with seven verses of deep theology. Let's see what he does here. In chapter 1, verse 1, here comes Paul. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What an intro. Man, if I was in Rome, I'd be like, this guy's smart, right? He's got a lot going on here. He introduces himself, he introduces the gospel, he introduces where he belongs in the space of the gospel. He says, first of all, hi, my name's Paul, and I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. He's my master. He's my Lord. He calls him Master, Lord, and Lord in these first seven verses. He said, I belong to him. I've been called by him. He said, I'm called to be an apostle. That means that he is sent by Christ to talk about Christ. That's what apostle ultimately means. I am sent by Christ to talk about Christ and to go one step further to found churches. That is his job. But then he says something that's a little bit unexpected. He says, I've been set apart for the gospel. Like, that's my reason for existence. It's not my job. It's it's the gospel. That's what I've been set apart for. Now, the gospel just means good news. The gospel just means good news, but it's the way that Jesus described his mission on earth. Jesus called his mission on earth the gospel, the good news. But Paul says something interesting here. He doesn't say, I'm set apart for the good news of Jesus. What does he say in verse 1? I've been set apart for the good news of God, God the Father. He says the good news doesn't originate in the person of Jesus. The good news, hear me, originate, originates in God the Father. Then he goes on to explain what he means. He says God the Father has promised good news in the Holy Scriptures through his prophetic writers. So Paul's thinking about the Old Testament. He's thinking about what God has promised to who? The nations, according to verse 5. He's thinking about what God has been planning and plotting since human beings came onto this planet. In fact, we just sang like the whole thing with our third song. The plan of God that he'd been laying out over time was expounded upon in the Old Testament. Now, you might say, Pastor Matt, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, and I would say that's some good trivia knowledge on you. But those 39 books don't always all speak to this blessing or this gospel to the nations, but the first book certainly does. And that's where Paul begins his thought process. You say, how do you know that 
Paul was thinking holy scriptures through the prophets in Genesis. Well, I know that because of where he spends Romans chapter 4. He's going to explain the plan of God, starting in Romans chapter 4, as it is expounded upon in Genesis, that there's a good news for the nations of the earth that he has been planning since the beginning. If you were to look back to the book of Genesis and you were to read chapters 1 and 2, you'd be pretty excited about human existence. God created humans to be with him, to have relationship with him, to have dominion over the earth, to rule and to reign with him. And then you get to chapter 3 and everything gets bad, bad in a hurry. Because human beings decide not to trust God. They decide to do things their own way. They decide to rebel against him and say, you know what, we could do it better than you. That's the story of our first parents. And if you read the story between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 11, whoo, it's bleak. Because human beings are moving further and further and further from the God who created them to be with him. They're moving further and further and further from the will of him who created them. They're despising the gift of life, and they're engaging in evil and violence and murder at unprecedented levels. And you would think God might just end this thing, but he doesn't. Instead, God hatches a plan. Just as our first parents decided not to trust God and rebelled against him, God recognized, if I can get one person to follow me, just one, one person to trust me absolutely, I could begin to save people. If I get one person to obey me, to believe me, to to truly think that I have their best intentions at heart, I can reverse the curse. And so he calls a man named Abraham. We're going to learn all about him in chapter 4. We're going to spend two weeks in chapter 4 talking about this man Abraham to whom Paul is referring to in chapter 1, verse 2 here the holy scriptures that have laid out the plan that God wants to bring good news to all the nations. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, God says to Abraham, Abraham, follow me, do what I say, obey my word. And in Romans chapter 12, 3, he says, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Bet you didn't know that there was that tinge of God wanting to save everybody all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, but there it is. God calls Abraham in order to bless the nations. That's the good news. God has good intentions for humanity. He doesn't want to leave humanity dead in their sin. He wants to save them. He's so intent on this that he repeats it three more times. In Romans chapter 18, verse 18, God says again, through Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. That's the good news. That's the gospel. God has good intentions for us. In a fascinating part of Scripture, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18 God says to Abraham so clearly how he's going to save people. He says, Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You've done what Adam and Eve couldn't do. You've obeyed me. You've had faith in me. You've trusted me. And therefore, when I see trust, when I see faith, when I see belief, I can bring about salvation I can bring about blessing. And just as icing on the cake before we're even halfway through the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 26, God says it to Abraham's son Isaac, through you I am going to bless all the nations of the earth. Four times in 13 chapters, 
God says, my plan is ultimately to bless the nations, to bless the world, to save people. That's what Paul's referring to here. The good news of God starts with God the Father, who is not consigning humanity to judgment, but is trying to bless them through faith and through obedience of fallen humanity. See, the gospel takes place in history, and the gospel takes place in the Holy Scriptures. And then Paul says in verse 3, the gospel takes place because of Jesus, because it concerns Jesus. He says this entire gospel that's been laid out in the Holy Scriptures in the Old Testament is concerning, verse 3, his son. That's what Paul is getting to. That ultimately the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Ultimately everything that takes place from Genesis through Malachi is pointing out our need for the gospel in person. And the good news that God's going to bless the earth is going to take place in the person of Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what God is doing and ultimately what he is after. So he says in verse 3, it's concerning his son who, according to the scriptures, was descended from David when it concerns the flesh. That means that the son of God who resided in heaven, who was part of the Trinity, came down to this earth and took on human flesh to do what we as humans couldn't do. We're going to learn all about that in chapter 5. We're going to see how Jesus became the second Adam and remade everything between God and man. He had to come in the flesh. Now David was a king of Israel to whom God had promised that, that, that a descendant would come who'd be the Messiah, who'd be the Savior. And so according to the flesh, Jesus is right in the plan of God. This is what God has been moving towards since Genesis chapter 12. And then he says, but he's not just the son of God according to the flesh, he's also the son of God according to what he did. Because he said Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was resurrected. And that declared that he was the son of God in power. Because if this person who had taken on flesh and become fully human has defeated death, then everything has changed. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we shall raise from the dead also. So Paul is setting up his credentials here. He understands exactly who Jesus is. He understands exactly why Jesus has sent. He understands the heart of God and ultimately the person of Jesus and the Holy Scriptures have come together in such powerful confluence that Paul says, I've been set apart for this very thing. To share with others that God's perfect story, God's perfect plan for humanity has come together in the person of Jesus. And if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then our biggest enemy has been defeated. If Jesus has been resurrected, then everything that we need from God has taken place. I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul, who was once an enemy of Christianity, who would put Christians in prison, was somebody who was willing to say the resurrection is proof positive that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul hung out in Jerusalem. Paul spent time in and around where these events would have taken place. And for him, the resurrection was entirely plausible. In the very place that the resurrection of Christ could have been disproved, that's where Paul originated his work. And he says the resurrection is proof positive that Jesus is the one to whom the gospel is pointed to since the beginning of Scripture.
Let's look at verse 5. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for his sake of his name among all of the nations. And this is the gospel in action. Now before Paul tells us about exactly what the gospel does, Paul tells us about what the gospel has meant for him. Let's look down at verse 5 once more time. He says, through whom we have received grace. Now that's a collective we, not just of, of him, but his ministry associates as well. We've received a gift that we didn't deserve. Many of you know that the Apostle Paul once put Christians in prison, and yet when he met the presence of Jesus, he was changed forever. Truly, he'd received grace. He says also that he received apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith. That means Paul received a calling on his life to do what God had always intended him to do. So as he's introducing the concept of what his gospel is to these Roman people, he cannot help but talk to them about what the gospel has meant for him. He can't help but talk about what God has done in his life to make the gospel real and make the gospel effective. He's received a gift that wasn't his to get, and he's received a job that wasn't his to have. That's what the gospel did for him. And now in the second half of verse 5, he explains what the gospel ought to do for others. He said the gospel is about bringing the obedience of faith. That's what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. And that's what happens when the gospel is talked about. It brings about an obedience of faith. Now, I don't know about you, but that might not be what I would expect. That that he preaches this gospel, and then ultimately, this good news of God remaking relationship with human beings would be done through belief. Not action, but belief. And this is where Christianity derivates from all the great religions of the world, all the other religions that people follow in great swaths. Because the obedience to God that God is after is not an obedience of sinlessness and perfection. But the obedience that God is after is an obedience of belief. The way to reverse the curse that Adam and Eve brought upon all of us is not that we would end up sinless, perfect, and able to stand before God saying, God, I did my life right. Instead, the gospel brings about something altogether different. It brings about a human spirit that says, God, I believe that you are good and that you intend to save me. I believe that you are not holding out on me, God. I believe that you are not someone who wishes me ill or wishes me bad, but instead you are so good that you would allow me to come back into relationship with you through what your son has done. See, what God is after is not your sinlessness. Paul makes it clear what God is after is your faith in him. That's the gospel. That's what reverses the curse. 
You can't turn back the clock and be sinless. You can't go back to your first mine as a three-year-old or your first meh as a two-year-old. You can't go back to that moment of your first sin and, 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 and strike it out and reverse it. You don't even want to be in the business of trying to put good deeds in the scale with bad deeds. I know I don't. Paul says what ultimately is great about the gospel is that what God wants from you and needs from you to remake everything is not perfection, it's trust. That's why he preaches the gospel. If Paul needed perfection to get into heaven, he would have been in hell because Paul had hurt and abused and maimed people in his pride. And he needed something that was so powerful to save him and he found it in the person of Jesus Christ. You don't need to be perfect today, says the gospel. You need to do what our first parents couldn't, which is to put your faith in God and believe that puts you in position to be saved. But Paul goes one step further. He says to the Romans, you've believed in the gospel, and therefore you belong. See, the gospel is not just to be believed, but it's to bring about belonging. He says, Romans, you belong to Jesus in the same way that I belong to Jesus. That's what connects us. Jesus Christ is our Lord to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. What's your last name? What's your surname? What's your last name? Your last name signal, signals in this life who you belong to. And what Paul is getting at is that you believe in the name of Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross and by his resurrection, ultimately that you might belong to him. For the sake of his name. That's why he says you were called to belong. It plays together. Verses 5 and 6. To the Romans we were called for the sake of his name. To belong to his name. And you also belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says Romans you are loved by God. And you are called to be his holy ones. Now that's an interesting statement. Hagios. Holy ones says Paul. That's what you're called to be you Roman Christians. Now, we've seen the word holy already in this passage, haven't we? Paul says Jesus was raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus was raised according to the spirit of holiness. And then he says, you who are in Rome, you are loved by God and you are called to be holy ones. Now, the reason Jesus was raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness was simple. If the wages of sin is death, if that's what happens in God's divine economy, if the wages of sin is death and you don't have any sin, what happens when your mortal body is destroyed? You don't stay dead. That's what raised Jesus to new life. He couldn't stay dead. He didn't have any sin. He was raised according to the spirit of holiness. And Paul now says to the Romans, you belong to God to such an extent that you are holy ones. 
You are so engulfed under the name of Jesus that when you die, you won't stay dead either. You're holy ones. The same spirit of holiness that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. That's the gospel. You Romans, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now present in you through our Lord Jesus Christ because you belong to his name. You're one of his. You belong to Jesus. Therefore, you are a holy one. And therefore, when you die, you're not staying dead. You're part of the spirit of holiness that Jesus gave you when you belonged. So that's why when we say the gospel beginning in this first part of Romans is to bring about belief and to bring about belonging, that's what we're talking about. What reverses the curse of Adam and Eve is one person, one at a time, saying, God, I will trust you, and I will believe in you, and one person recognizing, holy banana, I cannot believe that I belong to Christ to the point that he calls me holy. Anybody feeling holy this morning? I sure didn't feel holy this week. I certainly don't feel holy right now. Yet that's what the Bible calls you and calls me when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if holiness means we don't stay dead but are resurrected to new life, sign me up. That's how much you belong to Jesus. You say, well, that's some deep theology, Pastor Matt. Thanks for sharing. I wish I would have had a second cup of coffee before I arrived this morning if I'd known that you were going to Romans. But I don't know how I could actually say that to another human being. I don't know how I could describe that belief and that belonging in such a way that it would be meaningful. And, and, and certainly, you used words that I would never use, some that I'm not even sure are in the dictionary. I know that. I remember the point at which I believed in Jesus, the point at which I came to what I would call adult faith. You know what I mean by adult faith? Like if you were raised in church, you had kid faith, right? And you heard the stories and you prayed the prayers and you, you spent time in and around God's people. You liked church. And then all of a sudden, you recognize, I don't know if I believe all of this. And, and you start to stray. You start to say, I don't know if God means good for me or if there's a God at all. I don't know if I want to serve him. And you begin, just like our first parents, to say, oh, I don't know about all that. I don't know if God means me good or if he's even there or what the story is. And I began to move away from God in my teenage years. And I remember I went to a conference called Acquire the Fire. And I didn't want to acquire anything. And I certainly didn't want to be on fire. But I had an experience with God. And that was the point at which I came into my adult faith, as I would call it. I knew God was real and I couldn't deny it anymore. And I gave my life to him and I recognized that I belonged to him. It was a powerful experience. And I remember I was riding the bus back home and I heard something from God. I wouldn't say it was the first time in my life. I, I can't say that categorically. But it was really, really clear that I needed to give up my friends. Now that's not in scripture. All Christians must give up their friends. Second hesitations, verse 3. And that's not that. But I knew very clearly that I was not the influencer. I was being influenced. 
I knew very certain that the people that I was surrounding myself with at that point in my life's history were not good for me. It's a pretty rough crowd of people. And I knew I needed to make a clean break if I was to truly serve God. And so in the eighth grade, at lunch that very next Monday, I went and sat at a table alone. Social death, right? And I remember my conviction of who Jesus was and what he was doing for me was so strong, I sat there alone. And I was willing to do that because I knew that God had spoken to me and I belonged to him now. And he was going to take care of the rest. And I remember those friends came over to the table, Skiff, what are you doing? Why aren't you sitting with us? And then they used some other choice language to talk about that decision. And I thought, no, guys, I'm good. I'm good. And I remember thinking to myself, what am I doing? Why am I here? Yeah, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. And I know what God spoke, and I know what God said. And I remember a few moments later, someone came over and goes, hey, Skiff, why are you sitting alone? He wasn't one of my friends. He wasn't somebody that I hung around. And I said, I don't know. I'm just kind of, you know, doing this thing. I couldn't explain to him. Well, I had an encounter with God. And uh, he told me that all those guys were influencing me in a negative fashion. And if I really wanted to serve him, I needed to make a clean break for now. And, and therefore, I'm sitting alone. Couldn't explain all that. And he says, well, I don't want you sitting here alone. Why don't you come sit with us? And I thought, oh, well, those are nice people. So I got up after 5, 10, 15 minutes of utter, utter social death. And God gave me a brand new set of friends, brand new set of people in my life, and said, listen, if you'll obey me, I'll bless you. And they were great friends all the way through the end of high school. I, I drove that same fellow home after our senior night party who had come and reached out to me that day. And I remember thinking, Wow, this was one of the scariest things I ever did was to believe that you really called me to go sit alone. And within minutes, you gave me better friends than I've had in years. And that moment set me on a trajectory by which I get to preach to you today. Now you say, Pastor Matt, why'd you share that? What does it have to do with your sermon? Everything. Because I received grace. And I received a calling. And God became real in my life. And that's just one story that I could share about who God is and what he's done for me. You have a story as well. You see, you don't have to explain the book of Romans to the non-Christian. What you need to do is explain what happened to you since you believed and what happened to you since you belonged. That's what you have at your disposal. What has God blessed you with since believing? Can you tell that story? Paul could. A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, having received grace, Jesus Christ my Lord, he could tell the story. In fact, he did in the book of Galatians. He retold his testimony to everybody in the same way that we heard it in Acts 
What's your story? What's God blessed you with since believing? And what has God blessed you with since belonging? When you took that act of faith, when you said, God, yes, I'll change. God, yes, I'll do something different. God, yes, I'll trust you in the same way Abraham trusted you, in the same way my first parents couldn't. Well, I'll trust you now. What has happened since then? That's what you can convey. Don't convey my story. It's probably not as good as yours. Don't, don't convey what God's done in me because what God's done in you is important for the people around you. You might say, Pastor Matt, even if I shared with people what God has done with me, I don't know that they could believe it. I don't know that that would change anything. Well, let me just ask you this. Is it possible that God could have been arranging the life circumstance of another person, the influences around them, the divine revelations that maybe they've had while sleeping or thinking or snoozing in such a way that when you share what God has done in you, you're the missing link. Could it just be that God is getting someone ready to be a Christian near you? Could it just be that if you really thought in the weeks to come, what has really happened in me, to me, and through me since knowing Jesus? If I really could talk about that and coin that and, and, and put it succinctly, if I really could share that, what might God do with it? What's your gospel? Have you defined it? Can you explain it? Can you defend it? That's why Paul wrote Romans. Because he had big plans for God. But he needed to define and explain his gospel. He needed to be able to, to defend it. Can you? That's what God calls each one of us to. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, we're waiting in deep waters. Your word is deep. Your plan is intricate. What you did through Jesus cannot be oversold. It's too monumental. One hymn writer said, if I had a thousand tongues to sing, I wouldn't be able to convey all that you are and all that you've done. Lord, I recognize our task is daunting this summer. Even in the midst of studying the first seven verses, you can just go, it's too much. There's, there's too much depth. There's too much to learn. There's so much going on. I, I can barely keep my head above water. But Lord, I know that your word accomplishes what you send it forth to do. And I pray for my brothers and sisters as we embark on this study this summer that your word would accomplish all that you sent it to do. I pray for my brothers and sisters that in the complexity of the word of God they would see a simplicity in what you've done in their life. I thank you in the depth, Lord, 
that you are there. And I ask, Lord, that we would hold on to you as we study your word so that we can remind ourselves just who you are, just what you've done, not only for the nations, but for us. I pray that we would grapple with these great questions. What have you done for us since we've believed? And what have you done in and through us since we've belonged? Father God, I pray that this summer would be transformative. Father God, I pray that you would give us a gospel to define and explain and defend. Always being able to give a response to the question, what is this hope that is in you? Help us to define it. Help us to understand it. Help us to share it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our God. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Would you stand? If I was Pastor Otto, I would tell you to give yourself a pat on the back for making it through your first sermon in Romans this year. Because it is deep and it is wide. And folks, I know that as we study it, there's going to be moments that your eyes get wide or your eyes get heavy. Because there's a lot to it but it's going to pay great dividends. So hang with us, and we'll look forward to all God's going to do through it this summer. God bless you.